Welcome to Psydactic Residency Edition, your podcast resource to survive and thrive in your psych residency. I am Dr. O'Leary, and as of this recording, I am a second-year resident in the National Capital Consortium Psychiatry Residency Program. However, make no mistake, I do not speak for this program, nor do I speak for the Department of Defense, the federal government, or anyone else for that matter. What I say is my opinion, and I reserve the right to be wrong. So trust me at your own risk. It's a risk some are willing to take. If you're looking for references and recommended readings, they can be found at the end of the show transcript that's located at sidactic.buzzsprout.com. This episode is dedicated to all the med students and residents who cringe every time they have to go to journal club. I'm a skeptical dude, and I'm often that a-hole in the journal club that points out all of the weaknesses to a study, much to the chagrin of the presenter. But I'm trying to be more balanced in my approach and crush fewer souls. I am going to report the results of an initial trial of a special kind of transcranial magnetic stimulation of the brain that might be the future of depression treatment, at least for treatment-resistant or severe varieties. I'll also use this as an opportunity to explain a little more about how repetitive TMS is usually performed, that is, its current FDA-approved form, killing two dinosaurs with one asteroid. The American Journal of Psychiatry in August 2020 reported the results of a potentially revolutionary new way to deliver magnetic stimulation to the brain. The paper was titled, Stanford Accelerated Intelligent Neuromodulation Therapy for Treatment-Resistant Depression. They call this method SAINT. Now, as a completely extraneous and unnecessary aside, I decided to come up with alternative acronyms for this method, simply because I thought SAINT was a little self-congratulatory. My first suggestion is ANTS, or Accelerated Neuromodulation Therapy from Stanford. The second is STAND, or Stanford Thetaburst Accelerated Neuromodulation Design. Finally, and most humbly, I propose AINT. Accelerated Intermittent Neuromodulation Using Thetaburst's. Now, I'll be the first to admit that none of these have the pizzazz of saint None would inspire as much confidence, and though I find the term intelligent to be a little excessive, this is likely just me being jealous. Getting back to the point, the SAINT method takes TMS to the next level by delivering much more energy, much more quickly, and much more precisely than previous repetitive TMS protocols. Let me start by reviewing a typical TMS protocol for depression, and then compare it to the ITBS, or Intermittent Thetaburst, model that SAINT uses. For RTMS, a patient normally may show up five days a week and get pulses at a rate of 10 hertz for a total of about 3,000 pulses per day. This is given over about half an hour. A hertz is just a special way of giving a dead white guy immortality by making his name mean per second, so... If something is 10 hertz and spaced out evenly, then it is given 10 times per per second, or every 100 milliseconds. 
The SAINT protocol is described as a patient getting 60 cycles of 10 bursts of three pulses at 50 hertz delivered in two-second trains. That's every 200 milliseconds with an eight-second intertrain interval. This is delivered hourly for 10 sessions per day. And so that's totaling 18,000 pulses per day compared with the 3,000 pulses for normal RTMS. And this is done for five consecutive days for a total of 90,000 pulses compared with about 90,000 pulses total delivered over 30 days in RTMS. Now, if you're confused by all those cycles of bursts of pulses at frequencies in trains, let me read you Fox and Socks by Dr. Seuss. Wait, well, that's copyrighted. So instead, let me break this down quickly and then summarize the take-home point. Theta burst is named Theta burst because one of the brain's endogenous frequencies, called the Theta rhythm, occurs at 3 to 7 hertz. In a ITBS protocol, three pulse 50 hertz bursts are applied with an interburst interval of 200 milliseconds, or 5 per second. And this is smack in the middle of the Theta burst frequency range in the brain. RTMS, on the other hand, is not designed to imitate theta rhythms, and the pulses are more spread out over time. So the take-home point is that intermittent theta burst stimulation is supposed to mimic the endogenous theta rhythms of the human brain. The desired outcome is to elicit excitatory effects or cause a certain cortical brain region to be more active. This is thought to cause some downstream effects in the deeper brain regions. Also, the Saint Protocol isn't smoking and joking on their lunch break. They deliver a course of treatment over merely five days, 10 hours per day, compared to the RTMS protocols that can take five weeks of nearly daily office visits lasting 30 to 45 minutes. Now, Stanford did not invent ITBS. But what they innovated was combining an accelerated ITBS protocol with precision focusing tools. They took both structural and functional MRI scans of their patients' brains in order to locate the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. In normal RTMS protocols, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is located by first placing the coils over the left motor cortex, turning it on and searching for the spot where the stimulation makes a patient's right thumb twitch. This involves titrating up the power to the coil to find the minimum amount of magnetic field needed to induce the motor response, and this is called the motor threshold. Once that's accomplished, the tech simply moves the coil forward about 5 centimeters to where they guess the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is, and then you press the go button. Now, I'm simplifying here. In my limited experience, they start below the motor threshold and slowly move up to about 120% of the motor threshold when they are stimulating the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Now, in, in the SAINT trial, they still need to find the motor threshold over the motor cortex, but they don't have to guesstimate the location of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. They had it mapped already, using that MRI. 
They also could precisely tell the depth of both the motor cortex and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and adjust the energy accordingly. The take-home point here is that the location of stimulation can be precisely calculated instead of just assumed. I suspect they used the word intelligent in their acronym instead of precision, which would have resulted in Stanford Accelerated Precision Neuromodulation Therapy, or SAPINT, which sounds like a secretive military special operations unit. Another completely useless aside on word shortening strategies, publishers still use the initialism TRD for treatment-resistant depression, which as an acronym would be pronounced TURD. Now, having swallowed that last little bit of trivia, we can move on. The SAINT trial was not a controlled trial. When studies with pills compare the test to a fake pill, they call that a placebo. But when a procedural treatment is compared with a fake treatment, they call the fake treatment a sham. Both serve the same purpose in the experiment, and the effects of fake treatments in general can be called placebo effects. The original SAINT trial had no sham treatment. It was just an open-label trial. All patients received the active protocol. 22 patients were included in an intention-to-treat analysis, and one patient dropped out after the first session due to some pre-existing anxiety about the treatments. All the patients included had treatment-resistant depression, with an average of six adequate medication trials. Twelve of the 22 patients were female, and seven of the patients had tried the FDA-approved version for RTMS previously. None of the patients had tried ECT. They used multiple scales, including the Montgomery Asperg Depression Rating Scale, or MATTERS, the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale, or the HAMD, 6 and 17 items, and the Beck Depression Inventory 2, or the BDI-2 scale, as well as the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, or CSSRS, specifically for suicidal ideation, although this was also measured using the other scales. These are normally used in research, so there's nothing strange here. The results of each scale, of course, are not independent of each other, um, as they're simply different and kind of similar ways of measuring the same thing, the symptom burden of depression. They also used a battery of neuropsychological tests to test for the cognitive side effects of the treatment, and they used the Young Mania Rating Scale to test for possible switching to hypomania. The only side effects reported by participants, other than the one who dropped out due to anxiety, were fatigue and some discomfort at both the stimulation site and facial muscles during the stimulation. The only changes on the neurocognitive test was an improvement, actually, in one measure of cognitive inhibition, so the protocol doesn't seem to cause people thinking problems. What changed dramatically, though, were the participants' depression scores. The remission rates on the different scales ranged from 80 to 93% on day 6, immediately after treatment, and remained between 60 to 70% a month later. This is pretty impressive, even without a sham group. Also, rates of suicidality plummeted with a persistent significant reduction in suicidality of between 80 and 100% on the various scales 
even a month after treatment. If these responses are found to be typical of patients receiving this protocol and are persistent, then this could be the best treatment available for depression. Now, here's where I temper your expectations, and I hope without crushing any souls. New forms of treatment like this often appear transformative initially, but fail to perform in randomized multicenter trials or when generalized to less controlled patient populations. In some sense, having done so well initially, they really have nowhere to go but down, so mere regression to the mean could go a long way in reducing their effect sizes. Also, it's worth asking, is it possible that patients excited about this new treatment overstated their initial symptom burden and then overstated the benefit? The authors point out, and I'll quote them here, the remission rate we observed is higher than reported open-label remission rates for standard FDA-approved RTMS protocols, 37%, ECT, 48% they report here, and ketamine, 31% for treating treatment-resistant depression. However, they are comparing a single current study to some historical meta-analyses, so this might not be a fair comparison. I should point out here, again, without getting too much into the detail, that many studies prior to this had suggested that ITBS could be an effective treatment. Stanford didn't invent the treatment, they just invented the intense delivery method. Even if these results are treatment-specific and durable, the authors point out that this study was not designed to see if the results were attributed to the spaced simulation sessions, accelerated delivery, high-pulse dose, individualized targeting, higher sham effect, or a combination of these. They just put it all together and then ran the experiment. I assume by higher sham effect, they mean that the placebo effect of receiving 10 hours per day of treatment for depression may have a large effect on mood, even if you fake the treatment. I'm not sure what the cost of having two MRIs and five 10-hour days of ITBS treatment is, but I doubt it's cheap. So initial treatment of depression is likely to remain pharmacotherapy, even if this protocol stands the test of time. Depression has a huge burden on patients, families, and the healthcare system, and also the economy, so any effective treatments are likely also to be cost-effective in the long term. There are a couple of other things I'd like to draw attention to. The first is a kind of bummer, and the second is more encouraging. The authors of the SAINT trial reported later, an average of 22 weeks later, six participants were treated again after a relapse of depression, but the retreatment did not have any effect. It may be that this treatment can only be given once or a limited number of times, or that is just not for everybody. It's hard to tell with such small sample sizes. Now to end on that high note I promised you, I found a registered 2020 study, um, you can find it on clinicaltrials.gov, that did compare the SAINT protocol to a sham treatment. The results I w was able to uncover were reported in an abstract from brain stimulation. Authors reported remission rates to be 78.57% in the active group and 13.33% in the sham treatment group, with a total of 29 patients. 
This is more good news for depressed patients. I know that I've obsessed over acronyms and initialisms during this episode, and I will not apologize. In fact, I have one more for you. While producing this episode, I came across a new initialism for the SAINT acronym. It was in an online article in the Stanford Daily, dated 2nd of December 2021, titled, Stanford Depression Treatment Nearly 80% Effective. I bring this up because in this article, they don't use the SAINT acronym, but instead report the treatment by the initialism SNT, short for Stanford Neuromodulation Therapy. I like this better than SAINT. Not that my opinion matters at all. But I still have a recommendation to improve it. Not that anyone cares. I suggest TNT, short for Theta Burst Neuromodulation Therapy. I think it's a little bit more memorable than S&T, and a little less self-congratulatory. In this episode, I discussed the SAINT trial and tried to use that as a way to compare ITBS with the current RTMS protocols. Hopefully in the future I'll be able to give an update reporting on SAINT or SNT or TNT or whatever they're going to call it in the future, and it will report similar results. Thank you for your time, and this has been an episode of Sciadactic, Residency Edition.